0: Really, the first generation in all of human history that's striving for egalitarian marriage. How can we be equals and in love? So, we interviewed a number of different couples, and what we found that was most striking the key trap that we fell into, and that we see most couples falling into, is this trap of the lower functioning couples were much more fixated on making everything perfectly fair. That led to these spirals of resentment and conflict. The higher functioning couples, they didn't really think that much about fairness. They were thinking more about how do we win together as a team? And so that's where we came up with this idea of the 80-80 marriage or the 80-80 relationship governed by this 80-80 mindset of radical generosity. And so I think one of the most powerful things we can think about if our interest is in improving our relationships, improving the quality of our own life is...
1: Welcome to the Inspired Evolution. I'm your humble host, Amrish Sandu, and you're tuning in to a conscious conversation designed to help you grow. Our mission here is simple. It's for you to live your purpose, live your best life, live the life you love. This podcast is sponsored by Enthusiasm for Life, by Great Creation Itself. Keep the good vibes flowing for myself and yourself. Do us a solid. Subscribe to the Inspired Evolution podcast on YouTube, the home of the Inspired Evolution podcast. Now sit back, relax, open your mind, open your heart to this conversation and stay inspired. Keep evolving. For some reason, the world that we live in doesn't talk about how to really live a healthy marriage. We speak a lot about finance growth, we speak a lot about business growth, we speak a lot about personal growth, but relationships, and especially when it comes to marriage and relationships, the mindsets that we need, the structures that we need to put in place to support that, those conversations are far and few between. Having realized what happened post-COVID, where a lot of people are actually struggling with their relationships, inspired me to go find a body of work that I could really stand by in order to bring a healthy relationship manifesto to you guys. Enter this week's conversation, the 80-80 marriage. It's about radical generosity. Generally, people at the moment living in 50-50 paradigms where it's all give and all take on a 50-50 ratio, this completely flips the paradigm on its head. We go 80-80. So what does that even mean? How does that even work? Because the math doesn't add up, and I know the engineer me <laughs> is still kind of, huh, about it all. And I can imagine when I'm evoking this level of, like, you show up 80% in your relationship and allow your partner to show up 80% in relationship, part of you is curious going, how do I actually do that? And the other part of you is squeamish. It's like, I'm meant to show up that much. So this is an incredibly profound conversation about how to live a fuller relationship through the art of giving. And when you think about how much connection is created simply through giving and just the natural tendency that love has to give and receive, it's actually beautiful Welcome back to the Inspired Evolution and with us today to inspire our evolution, we have with us Nate Glimp. Nate, how are you there, brother? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for having me today. Oh man, the pleasure is all ours. For those that haven't met Nate before, give me two sakes, I'll do the honors. He's got his Bachelor's in Master's Philosophy from Stanford University, a PhD from Princeton University. Um... It would be unfair to mention a bio without sort of playing homage to your deep passion for mindfulness, um, which is something we both revel in deeply. So I'm looking forward to our chat chats around that today. And recently you co-authored with um, with Kate your the New York Times bestseller, um, The 8080 Marriage, which is a new model for happier, healthier, stronger marriages, and... Um, and I'm really intrigued to sort of dive deep into having a conversation around marriage today because the concept around eighty eighty marriage, um, well, it doesn't make a lot of sense when you read the titles <laughs> and the book's had a lot of acclaim. So I think breaking it down for us is gonna be really useful. But before we dive deep into that, Nate, we've got you here today. You've got, you know, um, your background you're well you're well studied um, and you've got a deep passion for mindfulness. I'd love to just sort of hear from you what is your like what's your mission in life? would you say? Well, I would
0: say these days my mission is trying to understand how to live more deeply, how to have more of an impact, and trying to share my experiences in that journey with other people in a way that could possibly be helpful. Um, you know, I was really inspired by your, uh, before the show, we were talking about your story, working in construction and, and leaving because it just wasn't the right fit. I had a similar version of that because I spent most of my adult life with this uh, dream of becoming a philosopher. And I went to Princeton and got a PhD and I became a philosophy professor. On paper, it was like, I was living the perfect life, but it it actually wasn't perfect for me, you know, and I found myself just in this grind, trying to get tenure, trying to publish articles, and realizing that what I m- loved most wasn't studying philosophy, but was actually living philosophically, which oh. is a really different kind of thing. Yeah, yeah and, yeah, and so that actually, that kind of inspired my whole journey. About 15 years ago, I, I left my job as a professor and- and that's really what brings me here. So I I just, I would say that, that that's the key for me is just um, trying to practice all of these things myself, but then also help other people refine their own practice and find their own tools.
1: I love that. Can I ask, where did your uh, passion for philosophy drop in? Like when you look back, cast an eye, oh, you must have done some, I know with, with mindfulness as a tool in our toolkits, we have this, um, self-awareness is sort of, <laughs> sort of like this downstream uh, benefit that just is uh, is relentless <laughs> at times, I, I might say. Um, yeah, where do you feel like um, philosophy for you? Like, obviously you were studying it and like you mentioned, you know, there was a pivot to actually I want to practically live a philosophical, um, yeah, enriched life. Um, where did you feel like that first dropped in for you?
0: Two key moments in that journey. The first was I was living in Cuba for about six months in the middle of college. And that was an experience that kind of shattered my ordinary perception of reality. Growing up in the United States, very different country, ending up in Cuba, communist dictatorship. And it just made me realize that there's something so fascinating about. Different value systems, different ideas, the, you know, the the impact that ideas can have on our reality, living in a, a regime that was very much inspired by Marxism and and philosophy, you know, versus America, which is inspired by an alternate political philosophy. And just seeing the differences there really inspired me to study it. And then I think what inspired me to make it more practical is that at the end of graduate school. When I was in the final year of my PhD, I really started to burn out. And I also had a serious bike accident at the time. So for the first time in my life, I was in my late 20s. I was experiencing pretty significant depression and anxiety. And the tools that I was learning through the academy, while useful for understanding ideas about politics and things like that, they weren't useful for helping me reconstruct the habits of my own mind, which is what I realized i think intuitively at the time that i needed to do. So so that led to a shift and i was really inspired by philosophers like Emerson and Henry David Thoreau who you know the, they were very much in this tradition of what i would call living philosophy that they they were not scholars they were they were people you know Thoreau moved to Walden for 2 years and 2 months not to read a bunch of books but to actually live it. So that became a big, big idea for me that I wanted to chase down.
1: I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And uh, yeah, I can totally relate to your first example, which is well, yeah, I'm inspired by your inspirations as well, actually. Um, but yeah, traveling to India as a kid and just seeing the sort of yeah, red pill, blue pill. And it's probably not the right metaphor, but sort of just how different it can be in different locations um and just the different cultural soups that you can you know s- steep in and just go whoa like there's a different completely different operating system here and there's a completely different operating system here but both hard drives boot up and run effectively um and there are pros and cons you know and it's like what's driving this and it's like yeah what's the philosophy behind you know the study of life like yeah it's it's profound so yeah i just uh, i love i love the fact that you shared that and then there's Yeah, I'm not surprised, um, yeah, that having those experiences early on because I I totally relate. Um, So we've gone from – you've got your passions around leadership, around mindfulness, around living a philosophically enriched life, living philosophy. Marriage, mate. Where where does – in around, you know, uh, like general disposition for, you know, myself and the life that I'm living – I guess marriage is a big part of that potentially, but where did you come to writing a book on marriage? Like, was it something that was just always going to happen or are you a bit surprised you wrote a book on marriage yourself? Tell us a little bit about how the book came to be.
0: I'm very surprised that I ended up writing a book about marriage and I'm even more surprised that I ended up co-authoring a book about marriage with my wife. We vowed we would never work together or write together or do anything like that. However, we were inspired... Because marriage for us was, I think, as for many couples, extremely difficult. And on paper, it looked like we had the perfect connection. We met in high school. We went to prom together. We ended up taking seven years off and then got back together. And um, really, it was kind of like an Instagram-worthy fairy tale marriage, by all accounts. High school sweethearts. Yeah, exactly. But then we actually got married. And a couple years in, started to experience just really unexpected challenges, conflict, to the point where we were very close to divorce. And so after, I don't know, a decade or 15 years of being married, we started getting really curious about what were the challenges we were encountering, and could we use our own life as a kind of laboratory For coming up with a new and different model of marriage. And part of the inspiration is that we started to realize that we weren't alone in this, that we were interviewing, we interviewed about a hundred couples for the book. And we found that almost every modern couple was having a similar experience in that they were trying to create a new model of marriage that was totally different from their parents or their grandparents because one of the things that's really unique about this moment in time is that we're really the first generation in all of human history that's striving for egalitarian marriage, for equal marriage. That just wasn't a question for most of our grandparents, maybe our parents a little bit. But as a result, we, we simply don't have a model for how to do that. And the key trap that we fell into and that we see most couples falling into is this trap of what we call it fairness, which is basically you ask the question, okay, well, how can we be equals and in love? Well, the fairness-based answer is to say, if we just make everything in our life perfectly 50-50 fair, and if I keep an elaborate mental scorecard of all the amazing things I do, and I compare them against my partner, then when we reach this elusive point of 50-50 fairness, like we're going to somehow ascend into the heavens of marital bliss and everything's going to be amazing and we're going to have sex all the time and, you know, life is going to be great. But I think as everybody knows, anybody who's tried this anyway, that's not at all how it works. It's actually the more we try to make things fair, the more we keep score, the further apart we drift, and ironically, the more unequal our relationship often becomes when it comes to contribution, childcare, things like that. So, so anyway, that was the inspiration. We wanted to figure out this puzzle. If fairness, isn't it, if that's not the solution to how to have an egalitarian marriage, then what is, what's the model for modern marriage?
1: I do really want to dive deep into relationship scorekeeping with you, because I think as we start talking about relationship scorekeeping, a lot of stuff that is, potentially pros and cons of today's models um, comes into light. But before we dive into that, you've touched on a really interesting point, which is the models that we have for marriage. And like you said, we're sort of the first generation sort of spearheading this. I think – and I'm conscious that we've got, you know, the male half of having written the book on the episode and there's a male here today. So maybe we might be broing out a little bit too much on the the male scope on – Um, the lens of marriage. But one of the things I find is even looking back and, you know, I I end up remarking on this myself, like, and not to say I'm some sort of super dad because I changed nappies, but like my father, my father, my father-in-law, like, you know, these people didn't really, it wasn't expected of them to change nappy. They were breadwinners. Right. So, and not saying changing nappies is like, yeah, but anyway, I think you guys get the point that are tuning in. So, you know, being a hands-on father at home trying to be a hands-on father like you know trying to be a breadwinner as well and you know all of the and trying to manage my wife's breadwinning at the same time as well and then you know her relationship and you start to look at like okay and then you'd look around and say like, okay we now live in these capitalistic nuclear family pods which are very isolated from wider family in many instances um, I've got a lot of friends here in, in Melbourne which people have actually immigrated from their home countries and they're raising families. Both of them are holding down jobs. They've got multiple kids. um, And there's no one else other than mum and dad to look after them. And they're now sending kids off to daycare. Daycare costs a lot. And they're in their job, entrenched in their jobs because they need to afford daycare because their kids and it's just like, that's where they get this. And it seems to be this really interesting time to be alive, to be a parent it takes two incomes to support a living in many instances. Um, or even here in Australia, I'm not sure what it's like over there. Um, but yeah, it's fine. We find it very difficult to look at. And go okay, if we had one income, could we support the family that we were, the way we wanted to? And it's like mm, there'd be a significant amount of sacrifice. I'm not sure that's what the future looks like that we want. And this is not a winch fest. It's more of a providing some context to sort of go, this is a very different landscape to the landscape that came before us. And yet here we are trying to step into greater and greater levels, I imagine, of like self-leadership and like you said, egalitarianism and trying to be more equal. Um, but we don't have models and we don't have archetypes to follow. We don't necessarily have leaderships, uh, leaders, leadership or leaders um, to follow that can sort of model that for us. And I find that quite challenging psychologically, if that makes sense. Um, Yeah, your thoughts on that?
0: Absolutely. You've named so many amazing things there. I mean, I I think what you're getting at is that we're living at the confluence of a lot of different historical forces. We have The rise of gender equality, which I think we would all say is a great thing, but it's also overturned the historical model. We call it the 80-20 model, where one person, generally the woman, does 80 percent. The other person, generally the man, does 20 percent when it comes to the energy put into a relationship, child rearing, things like that. So so we've got this rise of gender equality. We've got um, all of these sort of economic forces at work, which you're naming, where most couples Both people have to work. That's just like the economic reality we're living in. And then on top of that, another thing that you mentioned that I think is really important is the rise of what I might call hyper parenting, which is the idea that as parents now, we are expected to be absolute rock stars. Like we're not just checking the box. We are going to be up in the middle of the night. We are going to be volunteering for the PTA. We are going to be at every soccer game. Right? So so you put all those together and not only that maybe you layer on one more which is the rise of digital distraction device addiction so now you know in our free time and idle time we're on our devices all the time but we're also expected to be amazing parents and work and do all these things it's completely overwhelming and I think that's the main thing when I talk to couples and I coach couples that I hear is we are just completely overloaded there's no space And so part of the reason to have a model is to figure out like, how do we be equals and in love? But another part of the reason to have a model is to figure out how can we build a little bit of space into our life so that we actually have room to connect, have room for intimacy. Because for many couples, like there just simply is not enough space, either physical space in the calendar or headspace, which is more intangible, but, but just as important.
1: I think space is going to be a really interesting conversation to have, <laughs> but I am conscious that I sort of, I sort of, I tangented it off of relationship yeah, no worries. scorekeeping. So let's, tangent. let's, let's bring me back there. So relationship scorekeeping. Now, when I started going, when I, well, when I read it in your book, it was, uh, yeah, I, some part of me felt really. I don't know, I don't say shame, but it was like, it felt like, oh man, I'm guilty of this. (laughs) And and it's, it's, it's an intuitive, I would say it's intuitive. It's just this intuitive thing that we naturally do. Um, And maybe that's just because of the context of the world that we're living in. But there is this sort of expectation of like 50, 50 fairness, like where, because at some point, and I think especially the dynamic shifted, um, for myself and my partner, when, you know, you're in a relationship and it's just you two and it's, you know, it's quite straightforward. You know, you guys are just, it's romance, touchwood. And then you, when you become a parent, the dynamics change significantly because you're now a team trying to grow this incredible human slash humans together. Um, there's much more involved in that. And then that re- that starts to become... I don't want to say more job-like, but it, it, it definitely has a sign. It's probably the thing I've found the most responsibility baked into. Um, and so the the concept of like, okay, let's pitch in. We're both going to have to be responsible for this. The concept of 50-50 fairness um, is quite intuitive. And that's where we land. But you espouse that potentially there's somewhere else to be beyond 50-50 fairness.
0: I think you're right it is intuitive. I like to think of it as almost the cultural center of gravity. It's just where we go without even knowing we're going there. And I also don't want it to sound like I'm just bashing 50, 50 fairness. <laughs> fairness is actually a really noble idea and it's a heck of a lot better than that 80, 20 model of the 1950s. So I want to start by saying that like, like fairness is fantastic on one level. It's a it's a huge step forward. However, as anybody who's ever tried this model knows, there are just these, these fundamental traps built into the model that make it unworkable if the definition of workable is to create a system that gives us what we really want out of a relationship, which is connection, love, intimacy, things like that. And the reason for that is that all of us have these cognitive biases that cloud our assessments of what is or isn't fair. And there's all sorts of research supporting this, but but they're quite fascinating. So one of them is what psychologists call availability bias, which is just a fancy way of saying that when it comes to all of my wonderful contributions to my family and my life together with my spouse, Kaylee, all of that information The information of my contributions is available to me. I see it happening in real time. I'm in the car for the pickups. I'm in the store buying groceries, et cetera. But when it comes to what Kaylee does, all of a sudden things get way less clear, way more blurry because most of what she does is unavailable to me. So as a result, there's this tendency for me to systematically underestimate everything that she does. So that's, that's (laughs) one cognitive bias that's at play, but then it gets even worse because there's another one, which we can call the overestimation bias. So in, in time studies, research on families, they found that both partners do it, men do it more, but that we have this tendency to overestimate the amount of time we spend on household chores and childcare. So in other words, if I say like, oh yeah, I spent, you know, 90 minutes cleaning the kitchen. It was probably more like 45 or 60. Right. So, so put those two together and here's the situation of modern couples, right? You've got a, a bias just built into the way we perceive the world where we're systematically underestimating what our partner does. We've got another bias where we're systematically overestimating what we do and we're striving for 50-50.
1: <laughs>
0: but like our ability to assess what is or isn't fair is based on total delusion. Right. So so yeah. what we think is 50 is probably more like 30 when it comes to us. What we what we assess our partner as as doing, you know, for their 50 is probably more like 80 or 70. Right. So yeah. so we're we're so far off. Mm. And that's the reason that that these arguments never end. Right. That there's just a, a bug built into the system itself that make it such that, you know, we're never going to find this point of perfect 50 50 fairness. It's like a mirage in the desert. The closer you get to it, the further it goes away.
1: That's profound. I love, well, I don't love the idea, but I think it makes it really, maybe it's just the engineer in me, but to be able to realize that actually we have these biases where we overestimate how much we show up for and underestimate how much actually our partner delivers And then we're trying to actually strive for a balance (laughs) in between there from our skewed perspectives, is actually, I don't want to say horrifying. But at the same time, it's quite a rude awakening, (laughs) actually. And part of me, actually, as you share that, um, even though 50-50 does feel intuitive, part of me also intuitively knows that as well, actually. Um, Yeah, as you're sharing that, I'm I'm sort of nodding because I'm going, oh, yeah, that actually is probably right. Like, I'm always intimate with the amount of effort and energy that I'm putting in. um, But less, well, I'm aware of everything my wife gets done, but less cognizant of how much energy and effort that's taking At her end and yeah I think with 50-50 also trying to find like spare time can be a bit of a thing right because you try to 50-50 the amount of time you apply each other apply into things when you're on them but you also try to 50-50 out like balancing I guess your relationship success and your family goals with you know maybe you want to start a business or you want to do things outside of work and you know, and when it doesn't necessarily work out like for one or the other, there's there's potential breeding grounds for contempt um, in there as well. And I think when I was going through researching your work, this I think there was a really interesting piece that you pointed out, which makes a lot of sense, but I think is worth expanding upon, is the mindset of you win, I lose, I win, you lose. Can you explain that a little bit further. Can you unpack that mindset for us?
0: Yeah. 50, 50 as a mindset is in some ways, you can think of it as a mindset of separation. And to your earlier point, that mindset doesn't actually fall into disrepair when it's just the two of you and you don't have kids. There are a lot of couples that can live a really great life with this 50, 50 mindset where it's just the two of them and and the separation comes from what you were just talking about where it's this idea that hey we're going to pretty much try to keep ourselves as separate as possible and you know my success is my success your success is your success the motto there is something like when i win you lose to a certain extent because you know now maybe i have more commitments on my time um, if we're keeping our finances separate, I now have more money than you. I might have more prestige than you, more status than you. Um, so so it ends up being this kind of almost, almost like uh, competitive in a subtle way model of being together. And we talked to a number of couples who had fallen into this trap where there was a kind of in-house competition going on. And that led to all sorts of fairness fights in a bunch of different domains. And, and one of the things I just want to say that's so interesting about these fairness conflicts is that for many people they're happening under the radar of awareness. Like we would ask people, do you fight about fairness? And they'd be like, nah, nah, we don't really fight about that. But then they would tell us these stories where it was clear this is what was happening in the background. And, and so it, it can be helpful just to name that like, as you were saying, fairness crops up around free time, You know, the exact amount of free time that I have to exercise or work on projects versus the amount of free time my partner has, it could arise in the domain of money, spending habits, saving habits. You know, here I am saving all this money and you went out, bought a robot vacuum cleaner. How could you? Right. That's a fairness fight. It could be around housework. That's where it often shows up. You know, I spent all day working on the house or whatever it is taking care of our kids and you, you did nothing. Um, so all that's to say these, these fights around fairness can show up in a lot of different domains. Another that I've just mentioned is extended family and friends. This is actually a huge fight for many couples around. Are we spending the same amount of time with my family that we're spending with your family or are we spending more? Are we spending the same amount of time with my friends as your friends? Or are we spending more? So, So all that's to say, yeah, like these, these conflicts over fairness, they're often difficult to see and subtle, but if you start looking closely, you may find that they're just everywhere.
1: Yeah. One of the other ones that you mentioned is actually, um, blame over past harms is when I was making notes was really interesting because I actually, as, as a coach myself, I start seeing like people find it very difficult to let go of that stuff in relationship. We're talking about relationship scorekeeping. People are keeping scorecards of not just like the last week or two weeks of, you know, Oh yeah, I've been doing this. I've been doing that and I'm doing this today and you're doing that today. But actually the scorecard is, (laughs) goes way back. Yeah. And that, that stuff's intense. Um, yeah, it's, it's baked into so much that we do. And I, I love what you said as well. like, we even though we may not when you ask people the question generally are your relationship scorekeeping They're like oh no we don't do that but when you start to look at where our frustrations arise from whether it's you know like you said the domestic household chores where we spend time with our e- e- different families and friends money issues where we spend our free time and yeah i think there's um yeah you can start to sort of see oh our frustrations are arising from this this mini expectation to sort of bounce off of relationship as a conversation and just back into your um, interest in mindfulness and and philosophy expectations. Are they as, um, as loaded as they seem um, for navigating a a well-lived life in your opinion? (laughs)
0: Expectations are, are definitely always there. I would almost say that expectations are similar to mindset in the sense that our mindset i think of as our the glasses we wear for perceiving reality the beliefs we hold about reality the value systems we hold that sort of organize our perceptions of what's happening in our life and so i would i think of expectations as almost like a subset of our mindset that the way we perceive the world the way we look at things in our life it's it's always shaped by certain expectations that we have. And so I think one of the most powerful things we can think about if our interest is in improving our relationships, improving just the quality of our own life, is what is our current mindset? What are the glasses through which we view our life? And are there ways in which we can shift our mindset such that we can live more skillfully or we can experience more moments of joy and things like that? And I don't know if you're familiar with, there's a woman at Stanford University, Aaliyah Crum, whose research is just totally fascinating. It's all about mindsets. And what she finds is that mindsets are everywhere and mindsets actually have profound implications. They actually change the functioning of our body. So like one of the more interesting experiments they did is they had people come in and they had them drink this protein shake. And the first week they said, hey, this is like a really, you know, good-for-you, low-calorie diet protein shake. And the people would drink that protein shake. Great. They'd come in the next week. They'd say, oh, this is the decadent, indulgent, high-fat, high-calorie protein shake. And they would drink that. Now, it was the same shake. The only thing they did was give them a different mindset about the shake. While they were drinking these milkshakes, the researchers were measuring what was happening in the bodies of participants. And they found that the mindset around the milkshake they were drinking changed the way their body metabolized the milkshake. So when they were told this is an indulgent, high-calorie milkshake, they produced something like three times as much ghrelin, which is the main hormone that, that sort of controls your, your appetite and satiation. And, and so it was this crazy finding that if you eat food with a mindset of like, this is enough, this is gonna satiate me, you're not going to be as hungry afterwards, which means you're not going to reach out for more food, which means you're, you know, you're going to be able to lose weight easier, all those things. So to me, that's an illustration of just like the, the profound power of mindset and expectation. And so if we think about our relationships, if we think about our life, there are all these mini mindsets that we have that are shaping our perceptions that are loaded with expectation to get back to the original root of the question And so, so that's where I think it can be really fun to play with like, well, okay, what if I play with some of these mindsets and, and find some mindsets that, that have expectations that are going to serve me more versus expectations that just constantly leave me disappointed and, and let down and feeling bad about
1: myself. I think that's a perfect segue into us going into mindset because We've gone, we've talked a little bit about the 2080s sort of mindset that we had in, like, you know, like you said, the 50s, where, where things are, you know, I don't want to say chauvinistic, but patriarchal. Yeah. Uh, There's probably a term out 100%. there that, that, fits, that yeah. fits for it right, right? Um, and then we've gone to a 50 50 where, where we're both, yeah, and we've talked about some of the pitfalls in that space. The mindset of radical generosity tell us about what radical generosity means to you and potentially yeah what 8080 means yeah.
0: yeah so yeah this is the big shift right i've been trying to make this argument thus far that 5050 while a huge advancement is loaded with all sorts of traps that can keep us caught in conflict and unnecessary arguing things like that so the question then becomes, and this is a question we really had to grapple with when we were writing this book and thinking about this model is if we're going to shift out of this 50/50 mindset while still preserving the, the benefit of equality that's that's baked into that model, wh- what do we do? Like how, how would we change our mindset? And so we interviewed a a number of different couples and we ran a bunch of experiments for a decade or so in our own marriage. And what we found that was most striking when we looked at the difference between the high-functioning couples and the low-functioning couples is that the lower-functioning couples were much more fixated on making everything perfectly fair. That led to these spirals of resentment and conflict. The higher-functioning couples, by contrast, they didn't really think that much about fairness. Fairness wasn't the, the vocabulary. Fairness wasn't the, the centerpiece of the model. Instead, for the higher functioning couples, they were thinking more about how do we win together as a team? So to your earlier point, it wasn't this individual turf war between partners. It was more, hey, we're a team. How do we win together? And, and as a subset of that goal, there was this kind of mindset that we kept observing. Finally, we started to call it radical generosity because the, the way the mindset worked is it was it was saying, you know, the goal here isn't to make everything perfectly 50-50 and to compare our contributions against each other. The goal is to do whatever we need to do to win. And The way we do that is by showing up every day in this mindset of radical generosity. And so numerically, this is where things get a little freaky, right? We thought, well, it's kind of like showing up every day trying to contribute 80%, right? And so that's where we came up with this idea of the 80-80 marriage or the 80-80 relationship governed by this 80-80 mindset of radical generosity, knowing that the math you know, you talked about engineering earlier. The math makes no sense. You can't <laughs> <engineering> have 160% <laughs> hole, but, but that's kind of the whole point, you know? Like, love doesn't make any sense. What does make sense, though, is that if we acknowledge the realities of all those cognitive biases we were talking about, availability bias, overestimation bias, like moving that goalpost radically from 50% to 80%, it doesn't mean we're going to hit 80%. We're not going to come close most likely, but we're going to uproot the, the very fabric of that conflict ridden mindset of fairness. And as a result, one of the things that's so profound about making that mindset shift is that even if only one partner, partner does it, there's this way in which our mindset is almost like a mirror, you know, so, 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 our mindset as an individual is likely to be mirrored back to us by our partner. If we approach our partner through the mindset of fairness and resentment, they're likely to show us fairness and resentment in return. If however, we show up with this mindset of radical generosity, maybe we don't even tell them, maybe it's totally stealth and under the radar. They're likely to feel that shift and, and there's, they're going to be more likely to respond with generosity in return. So so there's this kind of like cyclical upward spiral feedback loop effect that's possible simply by shifting our mindset.
1: Because that was going to be one of my questions today. Do we need to both be on board for the transformation that is espoused um, through the eighty eighty mindset shift? Because, yeah, I... I guess as I started to really listen to what you were saying, just then, I guess the true spirit of generosity is actually taking a risk on just showing up and seeing where it goes. Because that's true. Like when you're really being generous and when you're really donating to charity, it's like that bit, that hurts (laughs) a little bit, you know, like it's a little bit uncomfortable, but it's probably the right thing to do, you know. It's, you know, I've been blessed, touched with abundance. And so, you know, that's probably the right amount to to give away, you know, touch wood. Um, and so, yeah, I can probably imagine it's quite difficult to believe. Or, yeah, to that, actually, I'll just show up an extra 80% and, you know, trust that the other person will meet me well, again, I can't use the word halfway anymore. <laughs> mm. Mm. Um, but that actually, it's just a beneficial thing for our relationship. It's not even about the other person, right? Because it's radical generosity. Yeah, yeah. I can feel the mindset slowly crumbling in my own mind. If you can probably see the pieces <laughs> falling, falling down. But yeah. I
0: think you do make an important point, which is that this works best when both partners are on, are on board. That's the ideal. Both people are really bought in. Hey. Let's approach this through a mindset of radical generosity. Let's win together as a team. So that's the ideal scenario. But I also want to be realistic that that is not the scenario many couples are dealing with or experiencing right now. So for many couples, one partner is what we would call the reluctant partner, where one partner is kind of like contributes a little bit less, a little bit less interested in doing anything to help the relationship or to work on the relationship And I think even in those cases, a mindset shift to radical generosity can be quite profound when the over-contributing partner is able to shift their mindset. Because, and and this is just from personal experience, Kaylee and I had this dynamic for many years in our relationship. She was the over-contributor. She did way more than I did when it came to our finances and household work and all those things, the mental load she was carrying. I was the reluctant partner, I did more, much less around the house, but I was always also less interested in sort of like working on our relationship together. And when the conversation was about fairness, which it was for the, the, the first part of our relationship, the dynamic was such that the more she would try to complain and point out all the ways that I wasn't measuring up, the further away I drifted from her and the more unequal things became. So it was like this gap of difference between our contributions just started to grow because my story was nothing I do will ever be enough for you. I'm just going to stop doing anything. It was like a, a labor strike. Screw you. I'm just going to like not do anything. And that's
1: a very common dynamic. So- when, Yeah, I was going to say that is super, Yeah, uh, sorry. Yeah, I'm it's joking.
0: super common. So you've got one spouse that's like the the over-contributing nagger the other spouse that's the under contributing person who just sort of starts to Mm. withdraw
1: and disappear. But they entrench themselves as well. When you're under contributing, you know, when you're that under contributor, you sort of find yourself going, Oh yeah. Like that's kind of, you, you, you you sort of typecast yourself into that role and then you turn your other, the other half of your relationship into the consistent, like you typecast them into like this nagger or whatever, you know, you see a lot of that, um, the labels start to come out and then they start to adhere, um, quite, quite fixedly.
0: Yeah. And as the under contributing partner, why would you do more than you currently do? Because first of all, you probably think it's not going to be enough, but second of all, it feels like you're doing it because you're somehow being controlled by your partner. Who's like the, the CEO, the over contributing partner of the, of the marriage. So there's a weird power dynamic that's in play. And, and I think the important thing to see about that dynamic is, is that the mindset of fairness will never solve that dynamic. It's just going to make it worse because the over-contributor is going to complain that things aren't fair. The under-contributor is going to do less. And then it just kind of like cycles and and gets worse. If that over-contributing partner can make a mindset shift to something like radical generosity, which I know sounds insane. Because it's
1: like, I yeah, already do everything. Very, why would I very? Why would I be generous? Very counterintuitive. But, but if you The look, most counterintuitive thing. Exactly. But if, <laughs> but, if, <laughs> but if you look at the
0: mindset or the underlying motivation behind the over-contributing partner, it's likely not one of generosity. It's likely one of resentment. And it's very difficult to shift out of that dynamic when the underlying motivation is resentment, anger, fairness. If on the other hand, the over-contributor can do what they're they're already doing anyway, from a mindset of radical generosity, it opens up a space for a new dynamic to emerge. And, And I know that it's possible because this is what's happened in our relationship, but it is very hard. And as you say, like everybody always wants the other person to go first there's one truism in relationships it's that everybody's happy to go second nobody wants to go first but the reality is somebody has to go first
1: yeah 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 and thank you so much for speaking to that that foreseeable trap another trap that i sort of precipitating it is slightly different is i guess if I'm showing up eighty percent, let's say we I, I, I jump on and, you know, I wouldn't say I'm the over-contributor in our relationship, but let's just say I am. Touch maybe I am, maybe I'm not. I think Kay and I in Touchwood have pretty solid dynamic. Um but radical generosity is a very cool, cool mindset for both of us to adopt. I would totally um yeah, totally dig what you're saying. Um there still feels this sort of okay, if I'm gonna be showing up 80% and radically generositying, um, I want the other pies to show up. 80% too. And I can see that I've just sort of fall fell back into like the 50, 50 just at a at a hyper 80, 80 level. Totally. <laughs> can you talk about that trap a little? <laughs> yeah, and I think that there's
0: nothing wrong with that. What you're speaking to is just like human nature. We, we actually do want to be appreciated for our generous actions as much as we might try not to. And so I think we have to acknowledge that and not try to be some sort of superhuman, enlightened being. Like Teresa. Who's just like, yeah, who's like, <laughs> I'm just going to give, 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 and I don't care if anything comes back in return. So so one of the ways we think about that when it comes to the eighty eighty model of relationships is to say, okay, let, let's think about Radical generosity is arising from three primary kinds of actions. Action one, contribution. So this is the acts of contribution that you do toward your spouse, kind of like classical generosity. And these could be big things, planning a big trip to some amazing place, Hawaii, I don't know, Australia for me. Um, Or they're, they're almost more powerful when they're smaller things, you know, making your spouse the cup of coffee, leaving them a post-it note that says, I love you on it. Those kinds of things are super powerful. To your point though, we do have this like fundamental human need to be acknowledged. And so the second piece of radical generosity, which I think is crucial, essential, is appreciation. So in other words, having a ritual every day, if you can, where you are appreciating your partner, for something they did that day, something they did right. And this is another one of those mindset flips. Ordinary mindset in relationships, we wear the glasses of seeing all the ways in which our partner has fallen short, all the problems with what they did. These are the glasses of criticism that we normally wear. Appreciation is about flipping that mindset, seeing what they actually did well, giving them a specific appreciation, thanking them for that thing, My wife and I, we do this every night before we go to bed. We find having like a habit stacking cue to anchor it to is really powerful. And doing it every day is really powerful because it, to your point, it speaks to that need that we have to not just contribute something that's radically generous, but to have that acknowledged by our partner. And when that happens, it's almost like I think of it like a call and response in music, you know where it's like the the orchestra between those two that's how you start playing the music of 8080 and radical generosity you really need both the other thing i would just touch on briefly which which i think is important too is there's a third piece to radical generosity we call it revealing which is basically sharing your full experience in relationships the reason this one is important to living in a mindset of radical generosity is as we've been talking about there are so many times where we misunderstand the motivations of our partner or maybe where our partner really isn't contributing the way they could or they should. And so revealing is about making that as a very clean reveal to your partner. Like, hey, I love you. And I noticed that you had, you, you made a commitment to do this thing and it and it hasn't happened. Like, is there some way we can figure out how to get you the the support or the resources to to make that happen, you know it's it's basically revealing your full truth as a gift to your relationship, and, and so really it's like those three pieces of radical generosity are the keys, and 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 that's how we can kind of overcome that worry you have about you know if all I'm doing is giving and getting nothing back, like how how does that work? Well. One antidote to that is appreciation. The other antidote to that is revealing. When you feel like you're getting nothing back, to actually reveal that, because that's true for you. And if you don't speak that, that that's also going to have an effect on your relationship.
1: Yeah, incredible. That definitely speaks to that fear. The I think contribution makes a lot of sense to a lot of us. Well, maybe I'm biased. It's my second highest value. So <laughs> nice. I I, it. um, maybe, it's, maybe it's just... Um, yeah, maybe it's just me when I'm tuning in. But I think contribution, like you said, um it's it when we talk about generosity, it seems to make a lot of sense. Um it's innate. The two things seem very, very well coupled together. And I love your example of like the big meta, the big examples, but also the small ones, you know, just like totally. yeah, just grabbing a cup of coffee and just, you know, putting it on their bedside table sort of thing. Like just those little little bits and pieces that you can do throughout the day. Post it notes sounds really fun as well. So yeah, um, but I think in appreciation, um, and I think there's definitely more we can wrap it down into revealing, but I think with appreciation, let's start there, because um, there was a really awesome example that I, I think it was Kelly speaking to it, um, where, yeah, you she walked into a room potentially, and I'm not sure if this was her example, she was referring to example, but saw was it yourself or someone playing with the kids and she was just like oh they've just been playing this whole time and then it's just like you know and there's that natural just like and I've been out doing this 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 speaking to those biases that we had earlier is are you, are you across what I'm referring to uh, Yeah I know exactly what you're talking about yeah can you can you give us that can you share just with ignol like how appreciation can really how it takes work to actually click in the mindset um, of appreciation and how she did that in that instance?
0: Yeah, the example in, in that particular instance was, and this was actually a, a different person, so this wasn't Kaylee, but the- Okay, cool, sorry. yeah. Um, <laughs> no, like it's so all good. The, yeah. the woman in the relationship comes home. She's been walking with a friend and the house is just a mess. Her husband made pancakes with the kids. They played dress up. There's costumes all over the place, dirty dishes <laughs> all over the place. And so what happens yeah. in the mind of an ordinary human being <laughs> when, when they walk into that? Well, our default way of seeing that situation is to probably say, oh, my God, this is such a mess. You need to Shit. clean this up. <laughs> How can you do yeah. this? Right. It's like this, this critical mindset. And, and this is male <laughs> yeah. or female the, the genders I think are irrelevant here but irrelevant but, yeah but that's the way we just see our life for the most part it's we we sort of have it, the uh, neuroscientists call it the negativity bias of the brain right we just we're wired to see what what's wrong or potential threats because that's how we survived thousands and thousands of years ago it was a adaptive trait the alternative to that the appreciation mindset might Include walking into that scene, having that reaction, but then taking a step back and thinking, like, okay, the house is a mess. Yes. But I just had the chance to walk with a friend and man, it looks like they had a good time. And maybe I make the clean reveal, like, hey, it would mean a lot to me if you guys cleaned up the mess. That's just a whole different energy to walk through the house in than this place is a mess. What were you doing while I was gone? Right? Like it's a, it it's the spirit of appreciation, which just has this way of kind of shifting the underlying culture of a relationship.
1: Yeah. And I can see the, and thank you so much for sharing that because I can see the amount of work that takes internally. Right? Because you, you have your natural default mode network kind of going, and then it's like, actually, what is all the silver linings to all of this? And it's actually there's a lot of silver linings. Actually, there's more silver than dark cloud, you know? Um, Yeah, and I find that really useful because, like you said, there's this natural human proclivity that we have when we walk into a situation to go, this is wrong, that's wrong, this doesn't work, that doesn't work, and then all of a sudden you remind yourself, it's like, shut up, Amrit, you've got kids, you know? (laughs) Like, touch wood, you know? And touch wood, it is a blessing because some people... Don't have, you know, and they try and they try and they try. And it's like the things you're complaining about. And it's not to say that, you know, bury your feelings. Um, But, yeah, I think the the ability to look at what, yeah, the glass half full, the optimism bias is always available to us and learning to appreciate more. And like you said, the energy that you walk through with, um, yeah, I love the way you describe that because that makes it super Yeah, Well, and that's where
0: I think that ultimately – if we strip all of this down to the bare foundation, your marriage practice or your relationship practice is a mindfulness practice. Because as you've been talking about, like in that moment where you walk into the house and your habitual thought stream is swirling, it's mindfulness that allows you to take that step back, see that you're caught in the swirl and then shift to an alternative possibility And that's really like the essence of the practice. And so Kaylee and I talk about how to this day, we've been working on this project for, I don't know, five years. We've been married for almost 20 years. To this day, we constantly get caught in that 50-50 mindset. I'll be doing the dishes after I just cooked the meal and she rolled in from work thinking to myself, I'm doing everything here. And, and so it's, it's the mindfulness that allows me to see in the moment, like, okay, that's 50 50. What if I were to shift to radical generosity? So, yeah, I, I think that's where these two things really converge for me. That if you don't cultivate some sort of mindfulness practice where you're able to see, the researchers call this meta awareness, you know, see the contents of your mind with a little bit of separation. If you can't see that, then those habitual patterns will just run the show. And you can have all the marriage tools in the world. You can read every marriage book there is. It doesn't matter. If you can't interrupt those patterns, you're not gonna get it off the ground.
1: Yeah, I love how you cover those two things together. They (laughs) seem Yeah. The 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 place I call it is like the observer. Um, Yes. And without stepping back into the observer, it's yeah, you're just in the noise. <laughs> you can't really ping what signal, signal. And yeah, I um, I really appreciate you sharing that. That's landed really deeply. The other piece of appreciation that I really took away it's it maybe I'm uh, a little bit yeah nervous to sort of say this out loud because it's it's a simple one. Yeah, actually, it meant a lot to me. And maybe it's too simple to talk about, but. We're going to talk about it because it's Inspired Illusion Podcast. I can talk about whatever I want. (laughs) That's (laughs) right. Appreciation. Just ask. Like, you mentioned it in the book. Like, you can just, like, dude, ask for appreciation, which... It, it it just I don't know why, it just seems so far away as an as an intuitive sort of response for me. And then when like, and as I heard you say and as I read it and I was like that is for me it's a game changer. Cause for me, like words of affirmation is my love language, Tajwood. So, you know, absolutely it's you know it's everything to me. And then I was like, Well, if that's what you're looking for, just Ask for it. Like, what? (laughs) You know, and that was actually quite profound, but very simple for me. Um, Can you expand on that for us, potentially? What you're
0: talking about, I think of it as the advanced appreciation practice. It's relatively easy for most of us to appreciate our spouse, to say, hey, you know, I I noticed how much time you spent with our kids. I, I really appreciate you for that, or whatever it is. What you're talking about is maybe 10 times more difficult for most of us, which is those moments where you really want to be appreciated. You put in a lot of work for whatever reason, your partner hasn't acknowledged it. Maybe hasn't even noticed it. And our default habit in those situations is to almost get passive aggressive. To almost Contempt. Yeah. Some to some just be yeah. like, yeah. Oh, if you're not going to acknowledge me for that, then screw you. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not gonna work hard like that anymore. You know, it's 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 this like this energy that that's gonna create a a kind of cycle of of conflict and resentment and things like that. And so the alternative path is to, as you say, ask your partner for appreciation. And it sounds simple, but if you've ever tried that, it is so vulnerable to make that ask. And it's actually difficult we found to make that ask in such a way that your partner can hear it coming from a place of love. Because for your partner, if you say, you know, I worked my ass off all day getting ready for this dinner party and you didn't say anything, I didn't get a thank you from you, right? If if that's the vibe we know exactly what your partner is going to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're yeah, going to they're going to attack back. You're going to be in a long fight. 100% success rate. Right? Exactly. <laughs> so so this is a really delicate one. That's why I think of this as the advanced <laughs> practice. It takes so much skill and precision to do it right. That that the ask has to come from a place of love to you know something to the effect of, "Hey, I just wanted to let you know" I've been working really hard, getting ready for this event for us. And I, you know, a part of me would really just love to be acknowledged from that, from you for that, whatever it is, right? You can, you can wordsmith that any way you want, but, but you can feel that the underlying energy or motivation is really different there. And, and most partners can really hear that. And we'll give you a thank you or an appreciation. And then you're out of that loop. You're out of the cycle of resentment. So I love that you picked up on that because I really do think that's an important practice and and maybe the the most difficult of the book.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was profound for me. Yeah. So thank it's you for responding really upon that. There's um. There's something I want to talk about there because like you just described something really interesting because one of the things I got certified in is, is gene keys and I'm not sure if you cross it, but there's this one of the sequences in the gene keys is relationships and at the heart of a lot of the stuff there is is tone, really. Yeah. Like successful relationships. Like tone is a huge thing. Totally. That comes out of that body of work. Um, and I and yeah, I'm realising if I can get this orchestrated correctly in my head before I say it is from a 50 50 stance the tone that I come with is very it's that mindset we described before you win I lose you know it's like this hey can I get some appreciation here because I've been you know and the tone's already off to a galloping cadence in the direction that it potentially isn't going to yeah it's not team oriented yeah um, whereas if I'm grounded in a place of, Hey, like I have been doing a whole bunch of stuff and appreciation is my love language and there'd be, you know, words of affirmation is my love language. And I could really just use some acknowledgement in this moment. Like that'd be really awesome. And just realizing that I'm coming from a place of radical generosity because I've been giving a lot and I'd love to just fill up the cup with a bit of receivership and then, you know go back to, and I can sort of see just the mindset of 50-50 versus radical generosity, the different tones almost that they carry as a frequency and then also what they elicit within us, the way we end up communicating and the importance of the tone of our, our voice and the way we communicate as well. Have I pieced together what I'm articulating correctly? Has yeah, are you no,
0: I, I think you're onto something really interesting. Actually, it's the first time anybody's asked me a question like that or made that observation. Because you're absolutely right. There, there are these two different energetic frequencies. And if you think about that 50-50 scorekeeping, fairness, frequency, or tone, I almost think of it like that's the vocabulary of a legislator or a litigator yeah. or an accountant. <laughs> yes, right? Like These, yes, are, these yes. are the models yeah. we have for dealing with <laughs> fairness. It's like the two party heads... On opposite sides trying to negotiate a compromise that's bipartisan, right? It's like you're on a you, you no, know, that's not fair. <laughs> we can't Speaker. give you that. What can you give us? Right. You know, or the two accountants trying yeah. to figure out how to merge, you know, these 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 two ledgers together, right? It's it's just like this very kind of instrumental, like cold, you know, negotiation based way of talking to each other. Not surprisingly, there's not a whole lot of love there. It's not a whole lot of like kindness happening in that vocabulary. So what I love about your observation there is that there is a way in which when we shift to something like radical generosity as our mindset, the tone of the conversation, the energetic sort of frequency changes because now it's coming from this place of love you know, and just as you were saying, it's so different to say, it's not fair. I did more than to say, I love you. And God, I just feel like I worked so hard on this and I would love to get your appreciation. Like you can just feel the difference. You know, even as I say them, I can feel the difference in my own body. I mean, the the contraction of the first, and I kind of tighten up and I get ready for a battle. And it's like, yeah, we got to like fight this to the death, you know, litigate this versus this more open, expansive like hey, let's let's figure out how to find a place where we understand each other, come back into connection. Like that's that's what this is all about. And if it's not about that, like why else would we be with another human being? You know, it's I don't know.
1: <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much for expanding upon that. Yeah, That's I love a, that observation. Yeah. It's so
0: so deep, so rich.
1: Touch yeah. one Thank you. So revealing I think it has a similar vein to it because yeah, I I I think it also requires uh, Yeah, I think revealing's probably the least obvious of the three parts of radical generosity. Um or I want to say obvious, probably the least intuitive part of of the three. And you mentioned it um, lightly earlier, but I'd love to sort of wrap it down there a little bit as well because I think it's, yeah, it's important because we've mentioned the word, and contempt's a heavy word, but, you know, maybe a softer version of contempt, but I'm going to use the word contempt because it speaks to the frequency of it a little bit. You know, we walk around like having done so much sometimes and then we're like... Oh, um there was no acknowledgement there, you know, or and it's not you seeking appreciation, but it's just like, hey, like this is how I'm feeling. Um, or and that takes it's it's so much easier sometimes to even not say things because you're just like, where is that conversation really gonna go anyway? And we're time poor because like you described before, we just don't have time for each other and you know, maybe this is an opportunity where we can bring that thread of space that space that we Mm, opened up earlier (laughs) back in a little bit because yeah but um yeah like can you practically ground us into what revealing really looks like um yeah absolutely well.
0: well to your point I think the experience of many couples is it's like you and your partner are living in these different worlds and revealing is what connects those worlds together so that you really have a sense of what's happening in your partner's world. And so there are really two sides to revealing. On the one side, revealing is is about just telling your partner what's really happening. Like what's really going on one level deeper than just surface level events. One of the traps that I think a lot of couples get caught in, Kaylee and I call it talking about the weather, where you don't see your spouse all day or your partner all day. You have this rare time together and you end up like talking about the weather. God, it's windy outside. Yeah, it really is windy. You know, Oh, did you see this happened in Congress today? Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, not that there's anything wrong with talking about the weather. It's fine. But it's like the weather has nothing to do with what's really happening inside of you (laughs) and the weather. (laughs) It's going to be hard to, to like bring those worlds together. So on one level revealing is just about creating habits around the kinds of questions you ask each other such that you're talking about more than just the weather. Hey, what's really going on? What what are you excited about? Like what's what's happening in your inner world? What's happening on planet you today? You know, so so that you can just start to really understand what what's going on in your partner's world. So that's that's the first piece which I think is really key But then the second piece of revealing is more tactical, I guess, or more specific to those moments where there's a misunderstanding, there's conflict of some sort, there's resentment, maybe even. And in those situations, as you alluded to before, the habit many of us get into is to just say, you know, I I don't want to bring this up. Let's just sweep this under the rug and pretend it didn't happen and, and the problem is all those little micro ruptures over time, even though they're really small on their own, you aggregate them, they become really huge, right? So we interviewed one couple where they almost got a divorce. The husband and the couple ended up cheating on his wife. I mean, it was like a just total mess. And they were trying to figure out like, why did this happen? And they couldn't find anything, But what they did find were all of these microscopic ruptures in connection that over time, even though each of them was maybe an inch wide rupture over time, it became miles and miles and miles. And and that's what led to the this huge blow up. And so so that's one of the reasons why revealing is so key is to use those micro moments of rupture and disconnection as opportunities to come back into connection rather than to just ignore them. cuz yeah. you know, yeah. cuz then you yeah. move back into connection and they actually become just these these amazing moments where we can get back into connection
1: with one another. Man, that is so profound. I I can almost just see the model playing out in my head now. It's like cuz those little all moments happen all the time. Um touchwood and we see them yeah, like it's and it's the smallest thing, you know. Um it, and it can be, the, it literally can be the small things like, oh, you like, you, like I, this happened the other day and I'm not proud of it, but I walked back into the house, um, with a coffee and I was like, where's my hot chocolate? And I was like, uh, oh, I thought you weren't drinking hot chocolate anymore. <laughs> you know? And that's just like a small moment, you know? And the reveal was like, oh, I'm like actually shocked that I didn't get you one. I actually just thought you weren't yeah. drinking hot chocolates anymore. <laughs> She's just like, oh, and I could tell she was good. But if I didn't have the reveal, it was like, oh, like, you know. There would have been just an, like that would have just swept past us sort of like, oh, she's asking for something, I didn't bring her. Hmm. You know? And then that would have been a riff had it not been revealed what was going on Tomorrow in my inner way. workings. And it takes a little bit of vulnerability for me to go oh, like, how dare you, like, because there would be some version of Amrit somewhere out there in the world that goes, hey, how, like, I was just getting a coffee for myself. I can't even get a coffee for myself. Exactly. You yeah, you could play that <laughs> like, whole conversation but, you know, out. We it. all know thankfully, how that, that would go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So many different ways. <laughs> yeah, right? So thankfully it was just like, hey, oh, shit. Like, I didn't, I, for some reason, part of me thought you weren't drinking hot chocolates anymore. And I just was trying to do you solid by not getting you one. Oops. Um, but I, I can see, like, yeah, the the reveal kind of the essence of it being, yeah, connection. You yeah. mentioned that word a couple of times in your response just then um, and how, like, that's fundamentally what it's driving. And obviously yeah. I'm biased, it's my highest value, so connection, you know, I'm looking for that everywhere. But, um, well, and, um, uh, yeah, just seeing that when you reveal, you provide more connection. When you don't reveal, yes. you insert a buffer from connection. And so... A healthy relationship is all about connection. If you're trying to foster that, then reveal, 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 rather than buffer, buffer, well, buffer. And there's one between underlying connection. principle here that you're
0: alluding to that I think is so important, which is you talked about how it was kind of uncomfortable, kind of vulnerable to make that reveal. And one of the things we like to say is that the path to a better, more connected relationship begins at the edge of your comfort zone. And what we mean by that is, if you think about everything we've been talking about today, the mindset of radical generosity, appreciating your partner once a day, uh, revealing more than just talking about the weather, revealing what's really going on, all of those things are uncomfortable, especially if you're not in the habit of doing them. Even if you are in the habit of doing them, revealing as an example, like it's still so uncomfortable for me when I feel out of connection with my wife to to bring that up. So there's really this interesting choice. You can stay in your comfort zone, but also stay disconnected and, and not really grow together. Or you can mm. really start working that edge a little mm-hmm. bit in a way that's healthy. I mean, obviously you don't want to go too far outside of that zone, but but if you start playing that edge, that's really the pathway to getting more of these things that we want out of marriage, you know, or relationships, love, connection, intimacy, all these things, they, they sort of involve moving into that place of discomfort. And that is, again, where I'm just going to plug mindfulness one more time. Mindfulness can be really valuable there because what <laughs> we're cultivating through a mindfulness practice is the ability to stay. Fundamentally, that's like the main thing we're doing is cultivating our ability to stay in the midst of challenging mind states, challenging physical sensations and instead of recoil and pull away just to like hang out in the, the shit sandwich.
1: Hmm. I think this is a perfect juncture to thank you for your time here on the episode and the podcast and conversation. But before I let you go, just been true Amrit, you know, gregarious fashion (laughs) and trying to make the most of every moment. um, Before you wrote the book, 8080, which we will put a link to the show, like in the show notes below for people to please go check out. Yeah, um, and even on that note, like we, we discussed a lot around the mindset stuff in the book today, but there's a whole area that we've left grayed out around the structure stuff. So there is plenty more for people to uh, to dive in deeper how to practically implement um, the stuff we're discussing here. And again, I definitely want to thank you for writing the book, but before I get to the opportunity to thank you for writing the book and your time here today, people told you not to write the book. People forewarned you not to do this. <laughs> Can you describe a little bit around sort of the taboos that you face? Cause you got like, you've written, you're a writer, you've written about plenty of things, but when you came to relationships somehow, yes, that, wasn't that was cool. one of
0: the most interesting uh-huh. parts of this process for me. I've written books about mindfulness. I've written books about politics. At no point did somebody say like, ooh, you don't write about mindfulness. Don't write about politics. But when it came to this book, I had so many versions of the same conversation where somebody would say, oh, you got to be careful. You know, I had these friends. They started a relationships podcast. And one year later, they got a divorce. You know, the assumption being that somehow by... (laughs) Writing about something like relationships, you will inevitably like cast a spell over your own relationship and you will be like (laughs) on this inevitable fatalistic path to a divorce and, you know, your life unraveling. And it was surprising how much that came up. The other thing that came up a lot was, you know, with other books that I've written, people would be like, yeah, I got Nate's book. It's on mindfulness, blah, blah, blah. With this book, there were a couple examples where, you know, one woman told us that her husband saw our book in their Amazon cart and was like, do we need to talk? Are we getting a divorce?
1: (laughs) (laughs) The, the, The learning was
0: just that there's this stigma around relationships that, you know, there's somehow this assumption that like, it should all be totally easy. If you need to buy a book on relationships and marriage, boy, you must be totally messed up. But we don't think that about other things. We don't think that like parents buying parenting books, you know, are like abusing their children. We don't think that like <laughs> leaders yeah. buying leadership books are are like, well, you know, is. the worst <laughs> CEOs in all of human history. Yeah. And yet we hold this view about relationship books. It's It's totally bizarre to me. So these were two things that were just really funny and interesting. And one of the things I take on as my mission is to try to deliver the message that like, trying to be better at your relationship is actually just a fundamentally sane thing to do. This is really hard. It's probably harder than running a business. (laughs) It's probably harder than managing your own mind. So like, why
1: wouldn't we try to get better? Why wouldn't we use a few Mm. tools? Yeah, and that leaves me with a point that I came into today's podcast with is, you know, following your work, you know, mindfulness, breath. I'm sure, you know, we probably share the reflection that these are things we spend a lot of time In Like, our mind is something we have, like, such an intimate relationship with. It's not taught in (laughs) schools, you know. Breath is something we do every moment of every day. No one sits down and goes, this is how optimal breathing actually is, you know. Um, And then you stop to think, and like, you know, touch wood, I've been reflecting on this recently. There's going to be a point coming up in my life at some point where I've spent more time, touch wood, with my partner than I haven't in life, you know, being alive. And you know, touch. With, and everybody's got a different relationship But for like, you know, that's something that I was reflecting on. And from that point, it was like, wow. And no one actually taught me marriage. Like no one. Yeah, had, it should be easy. Took a moment to you teach me You just know how, how to do, do it. That, where it's what. Yeah. If you don't. There's
0: something wrong with you. Right. Like that's just craziness. craziness.
1: <sighs> yeah. And man, from that point, Nate brother, I really just yeah. From all you like facing down all the taboos for relationship making it accessible and writing a book, which, yeah, I can. When I first walked into it, like 8080 80 sounded, especially the engineering was like, What the heck? Like, <laughs> it's just so triggered. <laughs> and, then, and diving into it, it just makes so much sense, man. Um, and the concept of radical generosity and showing up to contribute, appreciate, and reveal, man. I'm just so grateful for yourself and Kelly writing the book together and putting it out there in the world and just sharing yourself so openly, abundantly through the book, through the work you guys have been doing over the last multiple decades, Kelly, obviously with her Enneagram stuff and leadership and exec coaching as well. But also, man, thank you so much for taking the time here to dive in so deep in this conversation with us here today. Really. Thank you, I, I really appreciate you. Appreciate you. <laughs> I, you so I love what this. you're
0: doing here. And, you know, it's it's such a service to all of your listeners. So. So thank you for doing what you do and thank you for having me on.
1: Thank you so much for tuning in to this amazing episode of the Inspired Evolution. Without you, the Inspired Evolution tribe, this podcast would not be what it is today. Thank you so much for your love and your support. Thank you so much for being so inspired to evolve. It's truly inspiring. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Inspired Evolution on YouTube, the home of the Inspired Evolution's video podcast. We release inspiring conversations such as this every week, along with guided meditations and empowering insights all designed to help you grow and evolve. Honestly, your subscription on YouTube to the channel helps us out a great deal.